I want futures mm. built for us by us and images of the future, ideas of the future. Got I think it. that's important. Like I think we need to be able to see ourselves in that space. You know, one of my rants whenever I give talks is that I do not want to live in the future of Elon Musk right. because that future is limited and limiting. That's the voice of Morishin Aliyari, the artist who has been spearheading awareness of a concept she has coined as digital colonialism. Aliyari, who was born and raised in Iran, should be no stranger to hyperallergic readers, as we've been covering her project since 2014, when Ben Valentine, who was reviewing her online Like Pearls project, which is about Iranian spam, wrote, just as the most exciting artworks show us who we are and our time and place in history better than we could see ourselves, Like Pearls is an uncomfortable but important look at a clash of customs going on around the planet as predominantly Western technologies creep into non-Western societies. That notion of unintended consequences is a good description of some of Aliari's own artistic and intellectual interests. Her material speculation ISIS project from 2015 to 16 propelled her into the spotlight as she recreated objects destroyed by ISIS in Iraq using the few images she could collect of the artifacts and then 3D printing them and embedding a USB with the data files inside the translucent sculptures. Her latest project, which is a performance lecture, was commissioned and presented by new museum affiliate Rhizome. Titled Physical Tactics for Digital Colonialism, it builds on her concept and its relationship to 3D printing. The lecture was just released online by the New Museum, and you can find a link in the notes to this podcast. But I wanted to invite her to our Brooklyn studio to discuss her latest work. I started by asking her to define digital colonialism for those who may never have heard the concept before. So digital colonialism is a term that specifically relates to the use of digital technologies such as 3D printing and 3D scanning as ways of colonizing historical mm -hmm. and cultural sites and artifacts, mostly like focused on uh, the Middle East or Africa, etc., where these, let's say, tech companies or Western archaeological uh, institutions, they use these tools, these tools like 3D scanners, and they go to different parts of the Middle East, Africa, etc., and they 3D scan these artifacts and historical sites, and then they have ownership of this data. They right. make uh, profit of it, they give only private access a lot of times to like specific places and then it's a term that I was also like developing in relationship to a work that I did in 2015 called material speculation ISIS where I reconstructed 12 artifacts that were destroyed by ISIS and then when I did that project you know it got a lot of press it got a lot of attention and people would do this thing where they would come to me and they'll be like oh have you seen this project you know for example it's called the Palmyra project where the oh, UK right. Archaeology Institute and uh, you know a bunch of other places, UN, etc. They collaborated and they reconstructed Palmyra, which was a site that was 
destroyed in Syria. It's right. 1800 year old site. It was yep. destroyed by ISIS. And so these these people came, this institution came and they reconstructed it and then they launched it in, in London. Oh, right, um, with the big arc that yes. was sort of like in front of Trafalgar Square, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. And then there you see Boris Johnson talking about right. how they're saving this thing <laughs> against like the barbarians who destroyed it. So they become sort of like these heroes and, you know, there's like a lot of issues like right there in terms of right. like how these people, these figures, in this case, politicians, get involved in these kind of like acts and then there is you know a problem of white savior whether it's a politician or a lot of these like tech companies who like SciArc or you know Google Art and Culture Institute where they're like going out there and talking about how they're saving these cultures and we know the reality is much more complex than that like Mm -hmm. let's say in this case of Palmyra and Boris Johnson you know, they're basically removing themselves from how they influenced the formation of right. ISIS in the first place, them right. and U.S. military's invasion. All the good yeah. guys, none of the bad guys sort of thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, removing themselves, talking about how these are the bad people, and then they are being the good people saving these cultures. While also we know, if, you know, you look online or, like, read about this stuff, that U.S. military invasion in Iraq and Afghanistan caused a lot of damage, a lot of destruction of different historical sites in these countries. So to me, you know, as someone from the Middle East, as someone from Iran, all these things in my head kind of are clear that like, yes, there's like the violence of the US military and then there's the violence of ISIS. And those are two kind of different kind of like violence. Right. You know, but people a lot of times, especially since these destructions happened by ISIS, um, ignored and never talked about U.S. military's like destruction. And, and not their, just their the violence. U.S. military, absolutely. It's crazy. I mean, it's amazing how archaeology and this sort of art is used that way. What did you think the coded message of the London thing? I mean, I think the thing about the London incident that's strange is it's so clear that it's a propaganda thing. Yeah. Do you it's, know? It's a propaganda thing. And there's so, like, if you read interviews around that, they're so, like, proud that they're yeah. being bold and bringing this to, to London and sort of like a... It's a big like fuck you to ISIS, you know, so it's these like ways that they sort of position themselves and then like use these things as a propaganda to again, like show some kind of power and sort of like some kind of also um, being the good, being the the positive, you know, actors in, in yeah. this whole scene, right? Do you, do you think it also has this kind of idea, like almost it justifies why the artifacts are in London. It justifies why there's a, like a needle from ancient Egypt, you know, in the middle of like a square in London. It justifies why the British Museum is full of loot. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you would be amazed that all these talks I've given in the last like four years around like my research, digital colonialism, around material speculation, all that stuff, like how many times I still like get an audience during Q and A telling me things like, Oh, well, you know, if this stuff stayed in and wasn't like, you know, 3D scan or like brought to these countries, they would have been ruined and destroyed. So at least, you know, it would be safe here. But I'm like, okay, who is causing a lot of this like war and like violence in first place? Why are they unstable? Why are they unstable? One. Two, in the case of, you know, all these... Or let's say like they brought the Nefertiti bus during some crisis or like many other artifacts (laughs) during some crisis. 
they could return it later, right? right. I mean, with the Nefertiti, I think yeah. I, I always use that as an example when I talk about Dujardin. Right. That. So that's in Berlin at the museum in Berlin, the beautiful Nefertiti bust. That's sort of like, I mean, it's really one of the most stunning pieces of ancient art. Yeah. Yeah, one of the most important. And then for the last decades, there has been this sort of like back and forth battle between the Egyptian government. And the German government, where the Egyptian government is like, you need to return this to us. You never had right. permission to take it. It's ours, and we want it back. And then literally the German government is like, nope, we're not <laughs> giving it back to you. Yeah. And so if you remember, there was also a whole thing around the 3D scan. Of That's this. right, which was controversial by itself. Absolutely. Yes, where these artists wanted access to the 3D scan of these files that the museum has from the Nefertiti bust. And then the museum is like, no, we can't give you access to the 3D scan. It's a very high quality scan. Right. Of it. And so they did a project where, you know, they go and do this like real life style performance and then take a connect with them and 3D scan the bust at the museum. I mean, there is like also a lot of scandal around that because some nerd this whole like research around it where he was like, no, there's no way you can have had That's done right. this That's with right. the connect because it's right. like low quality. This file that you have released online now is very high quality. So right. yeah, basically what these artists did was like they released this 3D scan, this 3D model uh, file of the Nefertiti online right. as a way to go against the colonization of the digital file itself. And for those who may not know, the project itself was called the Other Nefertiti and it was work by Germany Rocky artist Nora Albadre and German artist uh, Jan Nikolai Nels, yes. just for those who Thank want to look it that. up. So, I mean, it's it's amazing how then in that case, where all of a sudden the artists were then sort of banned from doing, which should have been a no-brainer in a way, like you could take photos or whatever. Though I guess the Nefertiti specifically are not allowed to take photos of. So it's like which they were Which is also another of, crazy right. thing, like how right. it's not just Who that decides? they have the object. And yep. again, like we can think about very similar things in terms of like digital ownership of data. That's they right. can decide what can be done to these objects. The same thing with the file. Yeah. So my whole argument with digital colonialism is that even the way a lot of these institutions are deciding what should happen to a digital file, mm -hmm. right? The whole Open Heritage Project, I don't know if you know about this project. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is a collaboration yep. between SciArc, again, which yep. is an organization for like digital construction and archaeology in Oakland, California, and a collaboration uh, with Google Arts and Culture Institute. Right. So they do this thing, which is called Open Heritage, mm -hmm. where they are like now sharing some of these like 3D scan as sort of this commitment to open source. Right. But they still own the copyright of these files. That's Let's right. say if they're sharing a file, a 3D scan of some site that they scanned in Lebanon. Yep. For the Lebanese government to use this, any kind of commercial use of these like scans, they have to get permission from SciArc. crazy? Yeah. So the similar things are happening. There's like so much around it. And I think this is a landscape that is still very like unfamiliar to us in some mm -hmm. ways. People are still like figuring out what to do with it. You know, if you're like a lawyer for cultural heritage, if you are the colonizer, if you are the, the country that is being colonized in that sense. So a lot to explore there. I guess what I loved about the term digital colonialism is, for me, it clarifies a lot of the issues we're seeing. Because I think we can also talk about the digital space and environmentalism and the, the fact that like things get dumped on the... And what I love about the term is it sort of brings up the power dynamics being unequal, which is something that you know we have to face more and more on the internet, particularly as these different levels of access get included. 
Now, what do you think some of the real sticking points in people understanding the real limits or the real challenges this poses? Because we're talking about a real sort of takeover of intellectual property, of objects, like you said, these scans, all these things. So what are the stakes? Well, how can people realize that this is serious? I mean, that's that's very complicated because, again, in my experience of giving like so many talks mm-hmm. around this, two things happen. Whether people are like completely shocked to find out that that's a thing. Mm-hmm. And I give examples and, you know, I present it like a court case, literally. That's yep. how I like think about it. Or people are still not understanding what the problem with it is because they perhaps have this more like utopian uh, perspective toward like open source and sharing, Mm -hmm. etc. Were you ever one of those that you thought, oh, no, everything should be open source? I definitely was. And when I when I did this uh, recently, I did a performance lecture at New Museum that Mm -hmm. was commissioned by Rizem called Physical Tactics for Digital Colonialism which I finally got to present all this research in a full, like only focusing on digital colonialism. And one of the things that I mentioned there is that how I think I was like naive when I worked on material speculation, I says, I, you know, did a project with Rhizome at a time mm-hmm. in February 2016, where we released a folder that mm-hmm. contained all the research that I have right. gathered around these artifacts from PDF files, images, my email correspondence. And that's still available, isn't it? Yes, it's online um, and Ryzen website as part of download series. That part for me is, is okay. It's like right. the research that right. I really want to share. Sure. I still don't regret that part. <laughs> but I also released one of the Scans. files, which was from King Utha. Got it. I am so, so, I don't know, grateful to whatever intuition and like situation that I had at a time that I was like, I don't want to release all the files because I don't know what's going to happen. I was like right. very nervous about that. Right. So when I released King Utha, I got like a lot of people sending me like images of them, like printing it or like, you know, opening it on their sort of computer and like playing around with it. And you know, of course, what happened was that 90% of these people were still living in the US and Europe, and right. they had like access to these, you know, technologies, mm-hmm. which means that people who actually are in Iraq or in Iran or this and that part of the Middle East are not going to be able to do that right. with these like files or have access to it in a similar way. So, you know, I sort of like stopped releasing any of the other files. And right now, what I'm trying to like focus on is to find a museum that can sort of like collaborate or um, maybe only like one museum in the Middle East that can take these digital files and, you know, basically commission them or just take them or just have them. Mm So ideally, the museum would be Mosul Museum. Right. And I'm currently in some conversation, but they're still like rebuilding a lot of parts of the museum. Yeah, I mean, they probably have a lot of things to worry about right now. Yeah, so digital ownership is not one of them, probably. (laughs) But I'm just waiting. I mean, I don't want to like rush this process just because I think this should be out. And one of the questions I've been raising is that open source is not always good because we have to ask questions about who has access to these files, who has access to these technologies, who has even access to like a internet that will allow you to download a 50 megabyte 3D scan that the Open Culture Project is like releasing, right? So these are all the questions we should like ask and we should be worried about. You know, I'm with you because I feel like it's now it's starting to look like this whole idea of open everything. It also perpetuates a fiction that we all have the same access and that we all have the same, 
you know, ability and rights and all these types of things. And the reality is they're not. They're not. And so the project, the Material Speculation Project, I want to talk about that a little because that's one that I think really captured people's imagination in terms of the scope of the vision you have for these things. And one of the things about that project is none of the objects were for sale, correct? You know, I think a lot of people were surprised about that. So I just want people to know that that was the yeah. case. And they sort of, you created these resin objects that had like UBSs sort of inserted with all the information and they kind of glowed and stuff. Now, what were your aesthetic choices in that project? Like, why did you decide to do it that way? Well, when I started to work on this project, um, you know, this is 2015, I knew one, there's no way to replace these objects, right? They're gone. There are not any like accurate number of images available from them, mm. you know. So the lack of images uh, was like a problem in terms of like reconstruction, mm-hmm. and so I was very limited. Whoever who was working on that project was very limited in terms of their access to images from these artifacts to do that kind of reconstruction job, mm-hmm. which means that doesn't matter what we're not going to have an accurate reconstruction of these artifacts and even if, if we did they're lost you know in terms of what what they were right, right, right. um so i wanted to like really think about this as a reconstruction project but also like think about all the like poetics that was involved in like making a project like that and as i mentioned there was a, a lot of research that went into this project so when i recreated them i included a memory card or flash drive inside the body of these artifacts inside mm-hmm. these like sculptures which can be seen as you mentioned because there is like a transparent resin that i use as material so if you like look at the artifact you can see the memory card and flash of inside of sort of the belly of the artifact and at that point i was really thinking about these objects as time capsules and how we could sort of keep this memory this like digital files etc for future civilization Mm -hmm. so so it was sort of a gesture a political gesture a poetic gesture and also it had you know practicality with it, Mm -hmm. uh, which was like doing the reconstruction work. So after that, you also did the Huma project. I want to talk a little bit about that because what I like about that is you use your research into, you know, Middle Eastern lore and folklore and sort of create something totally new, which is these mashups, you know, the ability to sort of combine these figures and create these not quite monsters. I mean, I don't know. You use the term sometimes, but they're kind of a little more than that. They're kind of, I don't You describe them. They're the ones that I've worked on so far that um, has been my focus, which is four of them. They're all gen or yep. genie, yep. the way yep. it is said in English. But they're all gen figures that I've like chosen from these like older ancient books. And, you know, well, Jen as, as a figure has mm-hmm. some sort of like monstrosity in right. it. It can possess human, it can be evil or good. Right. And I think that's what made this figure of Jen for me like a very fascinating figure because there's so much potential in this hybrid space of bad and good. Right. But for me also, She Who Sees the Unknown, which is the name of this series, has been very much about, one, embracing monstrosity, mm-hmm. two, looking at these like female or like queer genderless figures in these stories, 
So that's been like very much my focus. I'm not looking at male sort of like superhero figures because we already have a lot of them. We, we know their more. stories. We don't need um, And, you know, there is a lot of these genderless female figures that are there in all these ancient books and stories. And we've like never really told their story. Not that there's no story around. There is. It's just that they're forgotten or misrepresented. So right. part of this was to take out these stories through like a lot of research, find them. And then use them as this empowering gesture and a process to tell new stories in relationship to the Middle East. So based on what that gen does or like what their power is known as, let's say Huma, the one you mentioned, mm -hmm. is a gen that is known to bring fever to human body. Right. So I connect that, the heat, the fever to global warming, but the injustice discussion around global warming, which I think it's like still very dominantly Western in ways that it approaches the problem and the solutions to the problem. Right. So are you trying to create a fuller picture of this issue? I guess it would be really useful if you can sort of like explain like how you see this, because this is, I'm sure it's a very emotional issue for you, because it's definitely an emotional issue for me, you know, and it's complicated because there's so much history involved here. So what do you see your project is doing? in terms of this not that it has to have a purpose but like how do you see it sort of filling in the gaps or how would you describe it definitely yeah so this project has many different components to mm -hmm. it one is telling new stories which i do in forms of different visual experiences from yep. video to net art to vr another part is creating these sculptural elements of it and then the other part is building an archive an archive mm -hmm. that does not exist we've never ever had an archive coming from the middle east like focusing on these like middle eastern or north african mm -hmm. figures that are like female that's you know has been like gathered whether their stories and or their images so i'm also building an archive which at the end of this work i'm going to put it online you know there's a lot of material that i've scanned literally from books that my mom has gone to like different stores in iran mm -hmm. and found to a lot of online. you got your mom involved yes. i love that <laughs> yes. i love that what does she think of your work she thinks i'm weird but at the same time she really embraces. <laughs> don't it, all our parents you know yeah. so she's always like okay i don't know you're working on these Jen and Pari, which is like these like this like very specific term that you use in, in farsi projects but you know, I don't, I'm not sure where you're going with it, but like she likes it. She sort of asked me questions about it. I've showed her the videos I've made. So yeah, she thinks I'm weird though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, parents are always the toughest critics. Yeah, they are. <laughs> but weird in good way. I think my parents were always very much, I don't know, sort of open about me being an artist. Mm -hmm. Which growing up in Iran, you know, a lot of parents weren't like they all wanted you to go to study either, you know, majors that would make you a doctor or a lawyer or engineer. Right. right so right, the fact right. that my parents were open about me doing this stuff. I mean, I was doing a lot of creative writing. That's my background, my entrance to the art mm -hmm. world. And they were very supportive of it. So. That wow, was cool. That's great. So now, do you mind if we talk a little bit about growing up in Iran and just sort of how it's impacting? Because, you know, growing up in Iran and living in the U.S. now, it must feel like going through the looking glass sometimes. Could you explain for people how that experience is or has been? It's been very complex. I would say in the last 11 years of living in the U.S., so many things has shifted and changed in terms of like how 
I perceive myself uh, in relationship to mm-hmm. the U.S., how I perceive like my people or like the kind of work that is being done. I have perceived like the art world in relationship to women, women of color, etc. Mm-hmm. So it's been a very sort of complex, long learning curve, mm-hmm. um, which I am so actually like grateful about. But moving from Iran, I think like, you know, I, I literally just moved to a place which was Denver, where I didn't know anyone on my own. I was 23 and I had full scholarship from University of Denver. And so I think like that was I, I always like looking back at it, say that was growing up, I don't know, five years within like a year. That's wow. how it felt. And, you know, at a time, again, I was probably like naive about so many things. It took so long to find this like identity in terms of like what it means and, you know, how I can like sort of have a community around me that I felt like connected to and like how to build, I don't know, like these like situations and platforms when they don't exist. You right. know? And I'm talking about like also being in somewhere like Colorado, Denver for two right. years, where it's like super not diverse. Mm-hmm. And it just always felt like being an outsider. And then I moved right. to Chicago and then I moved to Texas which each was like a very different experience. But I also moved around a lot in the U.S. So I think my understanding of the United States is perhaps much more layered than like a lot of people who just like move from, let's say, Tehran to like New York and they just stay in New York, you know. But now I just feel at this time with like everything that has happened with the ban and like... Mm More complex issues that perhaps... We'll talk about that too. Yeah, perhaps as Middle Eastern people, I don't know. We we never maybe like were in situation that we had to like really rethink and rephrase certain things because of, you know, newer form of oppression. You know, mm. the, no, there was 9-11. Right. 9-11 was different in a way that like we were treated because of it. And I think this legitimized certain kind of hate, certain kind yep. of, you know perhaps monstrosity, something I'm trying to actually embrace and turn around in a way that we have not experienced. Right. So this is very new. Like I talk, I have a lot of conversations with my Iranian friends, with my friends from different Arab countries. And we talk about this a lot. Like we are very new in trying to build these spaces and like sort of figuring out where we are with it. You know, I get a lot of inspiration from perhaps my friends and colleagues who do a lot of work focusing on black culture or like black history. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously that oppression is much sure. more real in in, dif- in a different way well, in the US. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, but sort of using that as inspiration, you know, because uh, like looking at the ways they've yeah. built these spaces for themselves at a time where we're like experiencing fascism in a very new way. Right. So now, do you think growing up in Iran, though, it changed your idea of relationship to history? Because I wonder sometimes, like being in the Middle East, history is very different. Yeah. Because it's sort of like literally, oh, you live in a building that's 800 years old. And, oh, I walk, you know, my school, (laughs) like it's, uh, you know, I was talking to, you know, my husband's uncle and he was like, yeah, there used to be like paintings on the wall. I think they were 17th century in our schoolhouse, you know, and it's just it's, it's a very different sense of time, but it's also a different sense of how you interact with it. Absolutely. And I think that's why I'm kind of in love with also this idea of working on these projects that are this non-binary relationship between history and technology. Mm-hmm. So growing up in Iran, we had so many mythical stories and, and literature. And, um, you know, it's not just like the architectural space around you, but constantly 
what you read and what you have to like study in school or the books that you know you get from bookstores etc so history is so present mm -hmm. and you're right the way it's present is like very different than the way it's maybe present perhaps in like yeah the country, can you like explain it because i can't put my finger on it it feels different it's different the way it's talked about experienced But, you know, is it because here, like, most of those things are in museums, so they feel super inaccessible? There, the majority of things are not in museums. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe it's the difference between when things are, like, institutionalized. Mm -hmm. And that creates maybe a certain kind of, like, separation. You go to Met to experience history, mm -hmm. you know? But, like, in Iran, you could walk around, like you're saying, in, like, streets and different neighborhoods and go to different historical sites that are just there. Some of them are not even like protected At all. the way they should be. So it just like feels so embedded in the culture. Right. Like you are part of it as part of you rather than this like more relationship of, oh, let's go to this place to experience culture or history, mm -hmm. you know? So maybe there's that gap as part of it, that separation that you feel here in a way that you don't feel it there because it's also embedded. So is art helping you bridge that? I'm trying to understand where art fits into this for you because you could be making art about anything, right? But clearly there's something that it's serving a function in terms of the way you're thinking about this. Well, I think with, you know, material speculation ISIS and she who sees the unknown, you know, I talk about this term. That's another term that I've like coined and developed um, in relationship to my research called refiguring, mm -hmm. refiguration. So with material speculation, it's a much more one on one like relationship, trying to refigure it, adding these elements of like research, etc. to it. But with she who sees the unknown, I'm thinking about refiguration as this like activism, feminism practice. So how to refiguring these processes, mm. these stories, you can change power dynamics, you can present mm. things in new ways. Plus, we don't even have a platform, um, any kind of like language built around this kind of perhaps future thinking as much when it comes to the Middle East. So yeah. part of what I'm doing with Who Sees the Unknown relates to sort of the present and issues of the present. So how to reimagining the past, we can reimagine possibilities of now. Mm -hmm. But also the next part of this series that I'm working on is working on a science fiction film. Wow. So that's what I'm developing right now. There is not much science fiction when you think about right like middle east like i grew up reading no science fiction yep. you know in iran there were like some translations i was an i have a theory about that what is your theory i have a theory about that oh, Tell me oh yours. good okay i'll go first <laughs> i'll go so you know it's like during the cold war the big science fiction hubs were soviet union and the u.s exactly and i feel like science fiction only happens when all your other needs are dealt with And I think, it, particularly in the Middle East, one thing I think people cannot understand for those of us from the Middle East is trauma is so much part of our families in so many ways, whether someone's been kidnapped or fought in a war or, you know, lived through a genocide. Like, this is kind of almost normal. And I feel like only now have some people been able to create the will and the time to really think about the future. And I think science fiction sometimes is thinking about the future in a way. Now I want to hear your idea. That's one of the things that I also believe in, that when you have to be so worried all the time about mm -hmm. now, how to make it to now, it's much harder to like have the privilege 
to think about future building, yep. future thinking. That's one. Two, I think we have so many mythical stories already are like this like imagined, ah, um, yeah. you know, lands and imagined sort of like narratives and possibilities that sort of what's in the past serves a little bit of this need of mm. what, you that know, in totally Western countries they made as science fiction for like imagination of something else. So you're saying like sci-fi is like mythology for the secular society <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how we, we dealt with mythology, like it had like a lot of elements that science fiction has. You know, you read a story and then in it, it's imagining something about the future, but that story is from the past that you're reading, right? Right. right. So it doesn't serve that whole idea of like science fiction that as like- total sense. Contemporary yeah. written thing that imagines the, the future, but Either way, I am really excited to like work on this project because I think there's so much you can do and there's so much you can do that doesn't have to come necessarily from this like stereotypical way of imagining the future and like the elements mm -hmm. that will be there. Like it doesn't have to be a spaceship there. It doesn't have to be, I don't know, some dystopian situation right. there. Like so that's going to take me a while to like work and develop. But I just like really want to sort of push this idea of what else could be possible with future right. thinking and future building. Well, isn't there one Iranian author who's a sci-fi writer that you like her work? Yes, Reza Negarstani and his book, Cyclonopedia. Oh, his book, I apologize. Uh, yeah, which is, is amazing. It's this horror science fiction. It was definitely a very big influence. Tell, can you tell people a little bit about his work who may not know? I mean, Reza Negarstani is a theorist. He's a, mm -hmm. he's a writer you know, very academic mm -hmm. at times. So there are a lot of things that I read from him and I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. Um, <laughs> but with Sakonopedia for me, that had the potential to like, really like read parts of it and sort of like take what was the name of, of that? Cyclonopedia Complicity with Anonymous Materials, which is this like science fiction happening in the Middle East. And it's, there's like fiction and there's like, sort of academic theories mashed up into each other mm -hmm. but it like uses also like oil um uses monstrosity uses mm -hmm. like all these dark elements as ways of like imagining this future like every like element in the middle east can become sort of an element for writing this story so from oil to dust there's mm -hmm. like a whole section on dustism so it's amazing and it's very complicated and reading interviews by Negarstani later i know he sort of like he doesn't like Cyclonopedia anymore. Um, <laughs> I still like it. I still think there was like so much potential. Why doesn't there. he like it? I don't know. He's moved on from it. I'm yeah. Not well, sure. I guess artists so, do that yeah. sometimes. So, yeah, exactly. but I'm like, no, that was like so important for right. the way that like I got to really be able to connect a lot of points. And I know a lot of other Iranian like artists and writers, etc., who are like very inspired by this book and the way it's written. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about sort of, you know, working as a working artist. You know, you're based here in New York, but you're traveling the world all the time. I follow in social media. And I'm like, I have no idea where she is now. <laughs> and I'm sure that feels even worse to you Same. at the time. Yeah. yeah, disorienting. But two years ago, something happened specifically about the Muslim ban. You were actually in Berlin at the time, correct? And that was announced. Yes, yes. And do you want to take it from there? Sure. So when the ban happened, some days before that, I had left 
my home in New York to go for um, a conference and an exhibition called Transmediale, which I was doing work with. And, you know, I go to Berlin, the ban happens, mm -hmm. and at a time I had a green card and an Iranian passport. And if you remember, at the beginning of the ban, green card holders were included. Yep, I was too. Yep. That's and right. so nobody for a while knew what was happening. Every, everything was like so chaotic. And for me, you know, I was privileged enough to be able to come back because I had the green card, which mm -hmm. is something that a lot of people right. are still not be able to have access to, like crossing this, this border. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at a time when that happened and when I was like, oh, my God, I might never be able to go back to my apartment. It was so intense yeah. because you feel like something you've worked so hard to build here for like over 10 years, it can all just go back to zero, to nothing. And I also, for a lot of sort of work that I've done that is like politically related, I am a little bit scared to go back to Iran. It's like risky. It can be risky. Yeah. So I haven't also been back there. It's not like I had the option of just like being like, okay, you know what? Uh, fuck US. I'm just going to go back and live in my country. So it was very complex sort of being in this space, which is how often things feels like these yeah. like binary extreme spaces that you're sort of thrown into and you have to figure out your way from it out of it. Yeah. So that like really sort of made me rethink a lot of things and not take things also like for granted but also just like feel like it is crazy that it's 2019 and something like a ban of certain bodies certain right. nations is just a thing you know and, and speaking of middle easterners one of the things i think a lot of people don't understand is how much borders are really such a big part of our lives you know in, it is in, so real it is so real so i mean whether you're pulled aside for questioning or you have to get a separate visa or if like your cousin can't visit your wedding do you know it's like these things that like it's so real how long did it take you to sort of recover from that too because people don't realize how much of the emotional energy and psychic energy gets sucked up in yeah. these things i mean especially when you've like worked so hard to even get that green card yeah you know I literally planned my move to the US since I was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. I'm not kidding because yeah. I was like going taking like really like hardcore TOEFL classes. You know, I worked so hard to get into That's this right. like one university that is Tehran University where like if you get to that university, it's much easier to get scholarship yep. in the US. And I didn't have like a crazy rich parents to like just yep. like pay for me to go somewhere. So it was a lot of working on this plan of like leaving because I wanted access to certain things. I wanted to study digital media, which was not a major yeah. in Iran. At a well, time. if you had rich parents, they could have just bought you into Harvard. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it was a lot of work, like, just like planning to move here. And then I had student visa and then I got like a green card. And just like losing all that, it meant something very real in terms of like my, my life yeah. and everything I planned around it. And also growing up with an Iranian passport, it means like you can't visit a lot right. of countries without having to do visa. The whole visa right. process is a crazy long process. And, you know, sometimes I get people who are like, who have American passports or like European passport, um, mostly like white people complaining about, oh my God, I had to like go get a visa off this. And it was like so hard. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like you have no idea where you <laughs> are right. with this. That's right. They wait an extra 25 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like, like <laughs> had to fill out five extra forms or something. I remember coming to the US after 9-11 happened with my family to visit my uncles who live in US. And 
they held my mom and my sister and I in this like one room at the airport for like four hours yeah. after we've traveled 18 hours to right. get there. Right. Like the way they just treated you was crazy. Like they were just hanging out, talking to each other. You're just left there. I mean, these are like also the cases that are like mild in terms yeah. of like what is happening in refugee camps right now, what's right. Uh, happening with ICE, like all that stuff. And, you know, I still feel like although we hear about these things all the time. Are we getting well, numb to them? I mean, yes and no, but I feel like we haven't figured out still how to deal with them as artists, as creators, right. like how to like sort of, again, like be able to build communities, be able to like build spaces that are like doing actual work on the ground to shift things or like criticize things or like amplify certain situations. Right. It's crazy. It's 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 real. It's it's a real, real, real problem. Absolutely. So yeah. now what are you excited about in contemporary art? I'm excited about, especially with everything happening, I don't know. I mean, the world, I guess, has been fucked up one way or another forever. But just being at this time, I'm like really excited about artists that I see that are doing the kind of work that is not just art. Mm -hmm. That, you know, for the last one decade, I've defined my practice as art activism, sort mm -hmm. of like being between these worlds. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because you have a term for that, too, that a lot of people may not know. About art activism? Yeah. Yeah, so sort of how you can use art and art making as ways to go beyond the problems of the art world to talk about different political, social struggles and to not only make art that can sit in the wall of a gallery, but like think about events, think about organizing, thinking about mm -hmm. community building. So sort of like what is known as like social practice, but mm -hmm. also more, you know, maybe social practice is like more like direct on like only like doing this kind of like social work but art activism perhaps like sits somewhere between these two worlds of art and activism so you're not straight doing like petitions or only like going and protesting but you know you're doing other ways of like rethinking how art making can be thought about how it can have a practical and poetic conceptual aspect to it weren't you also using the word atavism Additivism. 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 Additivism is a movement that uh, in 2016, myself and uh, artist writer Daniel Rourke started. It was sort of like thinking about additive technologies, including mm -hmm. 3D printing and 3D scanning, which, you know, has been two of my main medium in the last years as this like tools that can have certain kind of like activism resistance mm -hmm. potential into them so we coined that term and additivism became a manifesto called the 3d activist manifesto that we released um, and then there was a book called the 3d activist cookbook mm -hmm. that contains the work of over 100 activist designers artists that um, submitted their work or we commissioned them for 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 that uh uh sort of collection so really thinking about how additive technologies can be used and not just to make decorative cute things that you perhaps don't even need mm -hmm. but like really thinking about the potential like there is like a an, an abortion kit there is um you know that you mix it with like other elements to, uh, there is there is um you know like a webcam a little like webcam surveillance uh, blocker that you can like print and like put on your laptop right. that looks like really cool and like it's sort of ironic and there's science fictional thinking about mm -hmm. the 3d printer itself as a machine that has 
a lot of potential. We're back to science fiction. Yeah. So that was a big also influence. So why? Why are we back at science fiction? Like, why is your imagination there right now? Because I sort of want us to be in the future. I want futures mm. built for us by us and images of the future, ideas of the future. Got I it. think that's important. Like, I think we need to be able to see ourselves in that space. You know, one of my rants whenever I give talks is that I do not want to live in the future of Elon Musk. Because right. that future is limited and limiting and it's never going to be about our struggles and the way to like solve our struggles. You didn't like his rap about Harambe? That came out, <laughs> yes. Did you hear that thing? No. Oh, it's I read terrible. about it. I haven't it's heard. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we'll play a little clip right now. Oh my god, yes, let's do it. And we thinking about you. So, you know, I think we need representation in that space, whether it's in literature, whether it's in cinema, whether it's just some kind of image of us existing in this space. I never had that when I was growing up as, mm. as a young girl in Iran. And so is I, it a place to belong? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I, I mean, I wish I had some kind of yeah. space to like, because I've right now trying to like work on the science fiction work. There is not that many things I can look up to. There are not that many, you know, I've been reading Octavia Butler and like, mm -hmm. yes, Razanek Arsani, but who is also still like a male figure, yep. you know, but like really as women in these like spaces, there's not much for us right. to look at as like models or role models. So I want to build that because I want other women from the Middle East to be able to imagine themselves in a reimagined future. So what do you think is stopping a lot of people from doing that imagination work? Maybe they don't think it's important. Um, mm. I don't know. I mean, why we didn't do it in Iran, I think we didn't think it's important. We didn't think it matters. I didn't think it matters like six years ago if you talk to me i would be like oh science fiction is kind of stupid because right. i only like thought about this very like white western version of science fiction and i right. never liked it Be i also right. didn't like it because i couldn't see myself in it right you know so as long if i could see myself in it i could perhaps really love it and like be able to like connect to it in a different way so that's what i'm saying i want women from the middle east to see themselves in these futures It's a beautiful thought. Now, before we go, when I was researching the artist's work before our interview, I came upon a new and strange breed of online videos by right-wing media pundits that are also using the term digital colonialism, even if it's being understood as something very different from what Aliyari originally conceived of. One by Canadian far-right political and social commentary website, The Rebel, felt particularly odd. I'll play you a clip. The term digital colonialism sounds a lot like social justice speak and makes us roll our eyes. But in an age where digital reality is becoming the reality, we should be wary of which corporations are vying for virtual dominion. NPR's quote, 3D scans help preserve history, but who should own them, only scratches the surface of the dangers of allowing tech companies like Google to digitize reality. So I asked the artist about her thoughts about this. Before we started this interview, I showed you a video of a right-wing website who is using digital colonialism in their own way 
to denote like the fact that corporations are taking all our data over. Now, what's going on? The term's catching on clearly. Yeah, but, it is. But it's morphing. I mean, I always even think about my art making like that. Like you sort of give birth to something mm-hmm. and it goes out to the world and then especially terms, they can just be used and reused and taken, you know, turned around, basically. So, I mean, you just showed me this video, and it's the first time I I was seeing it. It's kind of crazy, like, how they're, like, using the similar sort of examples, but Mm -hmm. then turning it around and saying, but Google, because they're left-wing or, like, whatever, they're, like, using that... It's like an anti-globalist... Power, yeah. Power, you know, that's the sort of how they're reframing it. Yeah, it's very strange. So, you know, but... That's just how things, I guess, are. You know, people can just take things, turn it around, present it in different ways. A special thanks to Prince Harvey, who provided the music for this week's episode. Titled Stay Gold, you can find more from this artist at princeharvey.com. I'm Harag Vartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening. And enjoy your week. I will bleed for the leaves on my family tree. I'm so discreet in the sheets and the streets where I eat. I'm such a beast on the beat. Got so much yeast for the weed. I bring the heat when it's necessary. My time, prime time, never secondary. I only got one life, living legendary. I'm fine, recline when I'm good and ready. So deadly, I bring the heat when it's necessary. My time, prime time, never secondary I only got one life, living legendary If you wanna know, just come